So 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Anima of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul your master by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mananam. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Thank you very much, Erin, and thank you, Andy, for your welcome. Uh, let me add mine uh, to Andy's. It's great to see you here and uh, great to welcome you at home as well. It's also great to have a few people up on the balcony this morning. Uh, welcome uh, you as well. Uh, well, can I encourage you to turn uh, back to that passage that Erin just read in 2 Samuel and uh, have it open in front of you. And uh, one of the nice things about these pews um, although we might, might not love the way they look, they do have a very handy place to put your Bible. So keep that passage open and you'll find an outline on the sheet that you were handed uh, on the way in as well. I don't know if you've ever uh, thought much about this, but when you're considering committing to a long-term relationship, it's very helpful to know what you're letting yourself in for. I'm not a habitual reader of dating adverts uh, for one or two reasons, but I came across one this week uh, that I thought was particularly clear. It's actually from an American newspaper in 1865. Chance for a spinster. I'm 18 years old, have a good set of teeth, and believe in the star-spangled banner on the 4th of July. I've taken up a state lot, cleared 18 acres last year, and seeded 10 of it down. My buckwheat looks first-rate. The oats and potatoes are bully. I have nine sheep, a two-year-old bull, and two heifers, besides a house and barn. I want to get married. And what I want to know is, how could any young lady possibly resist that offer? Uh, and incidentally, it's not a bad position to be in for an 18-year-old, is it? But my point is that the offer is clear. Any eligible young lady who took up the ad would know, at least at the level of material prospects, what she was signing up for. And when you're entering a long-term relationship, clarity is of great value. 
Now, why are we talking about this? Because as we turn this morning to the second book of Samuel, we're looking, as Andy has already reminded us, at a little model, a kind of a microcosm of the kingship or the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingship and his kingdom, that is life under the rule of Jesus, is being demonstrated, being modeled, being foreshadowed here in the kingdom that David is establishing in ancient Israel. That's why we are going back all these years to study this book. And what we're going to see this morning is that the offer, if I can put it that way for now, that Jesus Christ makes to all who would enter that relationship with him, all who would recognize him as king, He's making it clear what it is he's offering. And I think we often need to remind ourselves, don't we, that the essence of the Christian faith is a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a religion. A religion, as I understand it, is a set of rules or principles or practices of behavior. Boil Christianity down And it's really what you make of Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. And while it may seem sometimes a little bit vague, a little bit sort of almost mystical to talk about a relationship with somebody that you can't even see, actually all we mean is to do what we saw Jonathan do last week, to bow in your heart to the King Jesus. So a Christian is somebody who simply recognizes that Jesus is the king who has come after David. He is the one who has authority over us, who gives that word king its fullest possible meaning. And so a Christian is somebody who enters a relationship with Jesus by acknowledging him as king and saying in our heart of hearts, yes, rather than no. But once we've done that, what do we expect What does Jesus put in his dating advert, if I can put it like that for now? What is that relationship going to be like? What's it going to be like to be part of his kingdom? Well, chapter 2 of 2 Samuel gives us some wonderful answers to this question. Because in these few short verses, we get a little glimpse of David, I think, at his best. Here is David beginning his reign. Later, as you'll already know if you've read ahead, there is sin and compromise and failure. But here at the birth of his kingdom, we get a glimpse of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God in its purest and most perfect form. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And you'll see from the outline there are three features of the kingdom that we need to understand from the passage inwardly digest and then learn what to do with as we go into the week. Firstly, David's kingdom is God's kingdom in verses 1 to 4. Have a look at the first verse again. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. As we look at this first section, I want us to notice that there are two forces at work running in parallel. There is the human and the divine. There is what David does, and there is what God does. 
And what God does is he uses what David does to accomplish his purposes. That is, human responsibility and divine sovereignty are working together so that we know that the kingdom David is, is establishing is God's kingdom. Well, let's look firstly then what David does. The first thing we are told that David does is he inquires of the Lord. That is, he asks the Lord what to do. He seeks God's will and then he does it. And the narrator wants us to see this in contrast to Saul, the king that came before him. One of the lessons of the first book of Samuel was that listening to God's voice and obeying his word is the one thing that marks out a good king. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 1, the prophet Samuel told Saul that the only thing he needed to do to succeed as king was to listen to the voice of the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 28, 18, we learn that the reason Saul's kingship failed, the one reason, was because he did not listen to the voice of the Lord and do what he was told. In contrast, we've already seen that at each of the steps to the rise of David to the throne, he has listened to the voice of the Lord and done what he says. But listening to God's direct guidance is not all David does. Before he inquires of the Lord, he has already done some careful thinking himself. So look again at verse 1 and notice that he doesn't just say, okay, God, tell me what to do. I'm listening. As if seeking God's will and obeying it is like being some kind of puppet or robot, he says, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? And that question reveals that David has already done a lot of thinking of his own about his next move. See, think about the situation David's in. He understands that although he is the Lord's anointed, and although the kingdom has been promised, it's not going to be plain sailing. He can't just sit back and let God's sovereignty take over as if he has to do nothing. That's not how it works. He will have to put in his human energy, his thought, his will, his decisions. And by those means, God will sovereignly work to bring about his kingdom. For a start, although Saul is dead, his supporters are still numerous and powerful, as we'll see in a moment. It's also worth knowing that Israel at this time is not what we might think of as a nation state, but it's a kind of a chaotic collection of tribes with various loyalties and factions of their own. It's a little bit like England was in the sort of pre-medieval days before Alfred became king of England. There was a king of Northumbria, there was a king of Wessex, there was a king of Mercia. And this is a little bit like the situation here. Being recognized king of Judah does not make David the king of Israel and its 12 tribes. So he's got work to do. And in addition to all of this, the Philistines have just won a great victory and they are powerful now in the north and they're going to continue to harass David for many years to come. So as well as listening to God's voice, David has to think carefully for himself and he can see that it's a shrewd move to move to Judah. Judah was David's home territory it's also the home territory of his wives, something the narrator makes clear in verse 2. 
It was, you may remember, in Bethlehem in Judah that David had been anointed by Samuel. It was in Judah that he had his famous victory against Goliath. And as recently as 1 Samuel 30, we read that he had just recently given some gifts, some spoils from his victory over the Amalekites to the elders of Judah, who we read in 1 Samuel 30 were his friends. To base himself in Judah, among his supporters, away from his enemies, is a wise political move. So what does David do? He inquires of the Lord, he seeks God's will, but at the same time, he is thinking and acting, and through these means, God is going to establish his kingdom. So what then does God do? Well, the narrator wants us to see that God is sovereignly at work through David's obedience to establish his kingdom, and there are three clues that he gives us. The first and most obvious is that he guides David very directly. He tells David what to do. And we might look at this and two questions might enter our minds. How does he do it? Does David hear a voice or is there some other method? And the answer to that question is that we're not told. We're not told directly the mechanism that God guides David in this case. It might be, as was the case in 1 Samuel, that David consulted the priest Abiathar and God revealed to it that way. We're not told. And so we can assume that detail doesn't matter. The other question that might raise itself is, Will God guide me that way today? Is this the ordinary way God guides by speaking to us, by directly answering our immediate questions? And to that I want to say, well, believing that is equivalent to believing that God will fight the Goliaths of the world through me, through my slingshot. No, this is not the normal way God guides today. This is God's anointed. He's establishing his kingdom. And the key point is that David is going to establish his kingdom in accordance with God's word. The second clue is that key word translated go up, which occurs five times in three verses. Verse one, shall I go up? Then he said to him, go up. To which town shall I go up? So David went up. Verse three, so David brought up the men. Same word, five times in three verses. So we get the distinct picture, don't we, that David is on the rise. Now, at one level, this reflects the geography. Hebron is 3,000 feet above sea level. It's as high as Scarfell Pike. It's on a mountain ridge to the south of Jerusalem. This is one reason it made a perfect base for David and his little army. It's a safe distance from the Philistines and from the, those who were loyal to Saul. And so we can picture David and his family and his little group of loyal men literally going up to their new home. But the word is stressed so much that we must see that it's more about simple geography. This is about God's elevation of David, his exaltation, which is literally what going up is. It's just being raised to power. So as we watch now and over the next few chapters, and we see David go up to Hebron, and then a few chapters later, he's going to go up to Jerusalem, and he's going to go up to his throne where finally all Israel will recognize him as king, we're going to know that God is doing it. He is elevating him, exalting him to power, so that we will know that this kingdom that we're watching 
is not just a political entity. It is, in fact, the kingdom of God itself. The third clue is the significance of that place name Hebron, which is mentioned three times in this section and again in verse 11. Why is it so significant that David was sent by God to Hebron? Because Hebron was the city of Abraham. Back in Genesis 13, it was in Hebron that Abraham settled just after God had promised him the kingdom of God to make all his descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. In Genesis 18, it was in Hebron that God appeared to Abraham and promised him a son. It was in Hebron that both Abraham and his wife Sarah were, were buried. And it was in Hebron, most significantly, that Abraham took possession of the one little piece of the promised land that he would ever own in his life. In other words, while Jerusalem will become famous in time, at this point in the Bible story, Hebron is the place on earth that is most closely associated with God's long promise of a worldwide kingdom. For Abraham, that little piece of the promised land that he owned was the promised land. And now for David, as he settles his family and his followers in this little town called Hebron, it doesn't look anything significant. It doesn't look like it's going to be a threat to the nations around him. It doesn't look anything worth putting your faith in. But what we're meant to see is this is the kingdom of God. A place of small but significant beginnings. Because this is where God is answering his promises. So two forces at work. The human and the divine. What David does and what God does. Now, this is a good reminder, isn't it, of the way God works. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe in God's sovereignty. We believe that nothing happens in this world that isn't according to his plan, that he worked out before the creation of the world. We believe that everything that is going on in this world is happening according to that plan. But that doesn't absolve human beings of our responsibility. Rather, God chooses to work and act in his sovereign plan through our decisions, through our prayers, our words, our money, our gifts, our personality. God uses our efforts to grow his kingdom. But more importantly for our purposes this morning, this tells us something very significant about David's kingdom and about Christ's kingdom to which it points. See, humanly speaking, David is working hard to get himself established as king over this disunited, beaten, and weak cluster of tribes. We're going to see as we read on in 2 Samuel that actually this appearance of fragility will continue. The kingdom of Israel actually will always be small and weak and divided. But behind that small, fragile kingdom, comes all the weight and the certainty of the promises of God, stretching back to Abraham and forwards to Christ. So that when you look at it, you can see that this is where it's at. This is where God is at work to fill the earth with the blessing that he promised Abraham. 
It might look small now. This little mustard seed-sized kingdom tucked away, as one writer puts it, in the hills of Judah. But we are to be in no doubt that this is the kingdom of God. And one day it will take over the earth. And therefore, if you were there at this time, this would be the place to put your confidence, your hope, your trust. It's the same for us this morning, isn't it? The New Testament opens with these words that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because his kingdom comes with all the weight of God's promises all the way back to Abraham. And it might look small and fragile now. It might appear, as we saw in Luke's gospel a few weeks ago, like a mustard seed or a pinch of yeast. But it's guaranteed to fill the earth quietly, but surely in God's good time. And that means as you look at it, this is the kingdom to be part of. This is where to put your trust. Don't be put off by the smallness of it, by the unimpressive nature of the church or its lack of political or social influence. This is where it's at. This is where God is keeping his promises. And so if you're not yet in the kingdom, if you're not yet convinced that Jesus is God's king, if you haven't settled yourself into a relationship with him by bowing to his rule in your heart, then this would be a great morning to do that. To do what Jonathan did, to recognize the kingship of Jesus, to say, although it doesn't look much now, this is what God is doing in the world. This is where to put our hope. But the second question is, what will it be like to belong to such a kingdom? If we decide that we're in, that this is the long-term relationship we're going to commit ourselves to, then what can we expect? Well, the second thing we learn is that David's kingdom is a kingdom of grace and truth. What we're about to read has special significance when you remember that this is the first recorded action that David takes after being recognized as king in Hebron. And if we look carefully at these verses, and they don't appear particularly spectacular at first sight, if we look carefully, we're going to get a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is like. Because life in the kingdom is determined by the character of the king. In the Navy, they tell you that the life on board a ship is determined by the personality of the captain. And some ships are happy ships and some ships are sad ships. Some ships are great places to work in. Some ships are full of frustration. And it all depends on the character of the captain. And we're going to see now that life in the kingdom is determined by the character of the king. And this kingdom is like none other on earth. To see the significance of this, we need to just look back and remember what happened just before these events. In the final chapter of 1 Samuel, we read about the death of King Saul on Mount Gilboa as Israel were defeated by the Philistines. And it's important to remember that Saul was David's enemy in life and therefore his supporters will continue to be his enemies after his death. 
But the first thing we see David do is deal with those supporters of Paul, Saul, David's most obvious enemies. Have a look at verse 4 and 5. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, as Aaron read it, we may have been thinking, oh, this isn't that exciting. What has this got to teach us? Well, I want to say it teaches us a great deal. This is referring to the very last recorded event in 1 Samuel 31. There, we read that the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead so honoured Saul that they marched through the night, that they risked their own lives to retrieve the body of Saul right under the noses of the Philistines. They gave Saul and his sons a proper burial, and then they fasted for seven days. In other words, these men are Saul's greatest supporters. They are the most loyal to the King Saul out of anyone in Israel. And if you've got a very good memory and you were here for the 1 Samuel series, you may remember the reason for their loyalty. Back in 1 Samuel 11, right at the beginning of Saul's reign, he rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead from that brutal king Nahash the Ammonite. You remember the king whose name means snake. So although Saul's got a bit of a bad track record, the first thing he did as king was something really wonderful. He was God's Messiah. He was God's Christ to these people. He rescued them from the enemy. And they have remained loyal, ferociously loyal ever since. And if they are Saul's best friends, then they are David's most obvious enemies. And what would any king do in David's shoes? Any Bronze Age warrior king, he would stamp on them ruthlessly. He would crush them as a first priority. But how does God's king treat his enemies? Look at verse 5 again. He sent messengers to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. At one level, this is an amazing act of diplomacy. Without any threat or coercion, David reminds the people of Jabesh-Gilead in a very straightforward way that Saul is dead and that he is now king, and so they, they may as well uh, back him. But there's more to it than this. And the clue is two very special Bible words David uses. Are you ready for a quick Hebrew lesson? Two words that are worth learning. The word kindness in verse 5 and 6, or loyalty if you've got the ESV, is the Hebrew word chesed. It's got that kind of ah that you speak if you speak Spanish. He's from Barcelona. Chesed. And it contains the idea of reliable, apologies to any Spanish speakers, it contains the idea of a reliable or steadfast love demonstrated in extreme acts of mercy, particularly to those who are helpless or undeserving. So it's a much, much richer word than loyalty. The best word is that New Testament word, grace, captures it well. 
The word translated faithfulness in verse 6 is the Hebrew word emet. Faithfulness is an okay translation. It's about being someone you can trust totally. But what the word really means is simply truth. Chesed, grace. Emet, truth. These two words are often paired together in the Old Testament to get to the heart of God's own character, particularly at key stages of the Old Testament story. And I put some examples on the sheet for you to chase up if you wish. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Genesis 24, 27, The God of Abraham, steadfast and faithful. Psalm 25, verse 10, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Hesed and emet. Or David himself in Psalm 138, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your steadfast love and faithfulness. So these two deeply loaded words are the currency with which David approaches the men of Jabesh-Gilead. In other words, he's not simply using the language of diplomacy, but the language of theology which he gains from the rich veins sunk deep into the Old Testament story. What God has taught Israel, he is like in his heart of hearts. He is full of grace and truth. Well, with that in mind, look again at what he says to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. First, he commends them for their hesed towards Saul, verse 5. It'd be natural for David, the newly appointed king, to then demand that they show him the same hesed. But he doesn't. Notice what he does instead. Is he promises or he prays that God will bless them with his hesed and emet, his grace and truth, verse 6. David actually is evangelizing them. He wants them to enter into a relationship with God himself. He wants to bring them in to God's kingdom. But the real surprise, I think the biggest surprise of the whole passage, is to see now in verse 6 how they are to receive that blessing. It's easy to miss, isn't it? But look at what David says in verse 6. And I will show you. And the original emphasizes the I. I myself will show you the same. Hesed and Emmet. In other words, if you come into my kingdom and you recognize me as king, you will receive this blessing of God, his grace and his truth. He will not treat you as his enemies deserve. He'll be merciful. He'll keep his promises. He'll be kind. Well, this is great news, isn't it, for the men of Jabesh-Gilead. But when we remember this little kingdom of David is a model for the kingdom that Jesus Christ will bring, this is fantastic news for us, isn't it? Because it means that if you come into relationship with Jesus by bowing in your heart to him as king, you're coming under the rule of somebody who has your best interests at heart. Somebody who is 
as we're going to hear in the last song, not only strong, strong enough to protect you from your enemies, but also kind, someone who treats you better than you deserve. No wonder John describes Jesus coming into the world in John 1.14 as one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And no wonder Jesus himself says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What to expect if you come into relationship with Jesus as king? Well, he's a king of absolute power because God has lifted him up to the highest place. But he's a king who does not deal with their enemies as they deserve, but who is gracious and merciful and kind. Sometimes Christians forget this, don't we? Sometimes we forget who it is we are serving. And you sometimes see it in Christians when serving Jesus has become a chore, not a joy. When they're asked to do something in church, they feel put upon, inconvenienced, as if they need to protect themselves from Jesus' rule, whereas actually it is Jesus' rule that makes our life flourish. If you're a Christian this morning, remember the person you are serving. Yes, he is king. His authority is absolute. He rules this world. He is the person we'll give an account to. But he's full of grace and truth. And he treats us better than we deserve. But there's one more thing we need to see this morning. Something that it's incredibly important to be clear about when you set out on this relationship. We need to know that this kingdom of grace and truth will be fiercely opposed. Pick it up again in verse 8. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he came, became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, it looks like a, a kind of a historical postscript. But we're being shown here something incredibly important. That while David has been welcomed by the people of Judah, an alternative kingdom is being established at the same time. Just notice the contrast between the two. David's reign begins with inquiring of the Lord. Ishbosheth's reign begins with Abner simply taking him and making him king. David's name, you may remember, means beloved. Ishbosheth means son of shame. We're told that Ishbosheth reigns over Israel, but David, in contrast, is followed by Judah. Lots of contrasts. But the most important thing we need to see is that David's kingdom is opposed because he is God's anointed, not because his opponents are ignorant of the fact. See, what do we know about this Abner chap? 
He's Saul's military commander. He's actually the cousin of Saul. And I don't know if you can picture him, but if you can think back to one of those American films where there's a typical kind of tough guy soldier character. You picture the guy in his khaki outfit, machine gun slung under his arm. Maybe you can remember Jack Nicholson's character in A Few Good Men, Leonardo DiCaprio, Blood Diamond, Rambo, Bruce Willis, these kind of people. Or if you're not familiar with those films, then, then maybe Scar in Lion King will sort of get the idea, the hard man, ruthless lover of violence. That's Abner. And we'll see Abner next week and the week after. But the key thing to note this morning is that Abner knows all about David. If you look back at 1 Samuel, you'll remember that Abner was actually the one who introduced David to Saul after he killed Goliath. Abner ate at Saul's table with David and Saul. Abner heard David's destiny from Saul's own mouth in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. Abner knew that David was the Lord's anointed, that one day he would be king over Israel. Why is this important? Because it reminds us that opposition to David's kingdom is not simply a political matter, but it's deeply rooted in human nature. It is deeply rooted in the story the Bible is telling of our world, that there is a kingdom of God, and it is always opposed by the kingdoms of man. This is why David himself would come to write in Psalm 2 that the nations conspire and plot that the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The kingdom David is establishing may well be a kingdom of grace and truth. It may well be the kingdom of God. But it doesn't mean that Belonging to such a kingdom comes without cost. In fact, it comes with great cost. Because to align with God's king makes you an enemy of every human pretender to the throne. If you make the decision to follow Jesus, you will not be Mr. Popular, Miss Popular at school. You will not be universally liked and respected by your colleagues you will not have an easy life because Jesus' kingdom is opposed. No wonder Jesus was so clear about this when he called people into that relationship as disciples. As he put it in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because that tells you that you belong to him. Well, let me sum up what we've seen so far. We're talking about expectations. What to expect if you come into this relationship with Jesus as king based on what we've seen of David, who foreshadows his kingship. We've seen three things, haven't we? Firstly, we've seen that Jesus' kingdom is God's kingdom. It might look small now. It might be advancing very quietly and unimpressively. And we can certainly feel that as Christians today, can't we? When Boris makes his announcements about the country and about 
coronavirus and about lockdown, he, he doesn't mention churches. And that's not because he's got anything particularly against us. It's just because we're not relevant. We're not relevant to the big things happening in this country as far as most people are concerned. We seem so marginal and so unimportant. But the Christian is someone who can see that this is God's kingdom. This is what he is doing. And this is what we want to be part of. The second thing we saw is that the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. What is it going to be like to be part of this kingdom? Well, it depends on the king. And we've seen that this is a kingdom full of grace and truth because that is the character of God himself. People talk today, don't they, about having a safe space, somewhere where you're not going to be hurt, somewhere where you can be yourself, somewhere you can flourish. Well, let me tell you that the kingdom of God is the safe space for each one of us. For some people, talk of authority and rule produces fear, doesn't it? The very idea of somebody ruling over their life is something to run away from because they've been subject to the abuse of authority. They've been crushed by authority, particularly the authority of men. So when they hear that Jesus is an absolute ruler, they are fearful. Surely this means I'm going to be crushed. Surely this means a loss of freedom, a loss of who I really am. But we've seen that nothing could be further from the truth. Because this king is full of grace and truth. This is the one who will make you the person you were created to be. This is the one whose strength actually provides the kingdom that is the safe space. He is the one whose spirit will transform you into his likeness. He is the one whose blood has been shed to bring you back to God. And the third thing we've seen is that belonging to such a kingdom will be costly because it is opposed by the kingdoms of men. But as we conclude, there's one little detail we need to notice. Did you notice how we're not told how the people of Jabesh Gilead respond? Did you notice that? David gives them the offer of kingship. But it's left open. And I think that is significant. Because before this opening scene of David's reign concludes, we are meant to see that there is a decision here for each one of us to make about the kingdom of God. It's a decision that hinges on what you make of Jesus. See, the essence of the Christian faith is a relationship with a real person. The man, Jesus Christ, whose coming David's whole life foreshadowed. The one whose kingdom was established not by power or persuasion, but by his death on the cross and his resurrection up to the right hand of God. This Jesus, who rules the wind and the waves, who has all authority, is the one before whom each of us will stand and give an account for our life. And so the biggest decision any of us will ever make in this life, I want to suggest, is what will you make of him?
What will you make of his kingship, of his rule? Will you, in your heart of hearts, submit to him as king? Or will you resist him? And if you have submitted to him as king, does it show in your life? Are his values your values? Is his kingdom your great concern? Is making his name great what your life is about? Will you resist him? Or will you serve him? Let me give you a moment to reflect on that. And then I'll pray. Paul says in Romans 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us that your kingdom begins small, continues to be opposed, but is recognizable by the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And we pray that we would not be intimidated by the world's ways, nor enticed by them, but each of us now would submit to Jesus' gracious rule in our hearts. And we would give ourselves fully to the quiet advancement of his kingdom and come to take on his values of grace and truth in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.